like what we do here at Clever, please consider supporting the show. To make a one-time donation, click the link in the episode description. Thank you. Hello there. This message is coming to you from the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, a collection of fascinating conversations with leading historians, giving you the lowdown on history's biggest characters, hidden stories and greatest adventures. Speaking of great adventures, this week, the History Extra podcast is brought to you by Booking.com. Whether you're looking for a culture-filled city break, a local getaway or a far-flung adventure, you can save at least 30% with Booking.com's Black Friday deals. These deals are for a limited time only, so you'll need to book before 1st of December to make the most of them. But the good news is that you'll have the flexibility to travel any time in 2021. Head to booking.com forward slash Black Friday to book your next big adventure. I have wasted a lot of time and money on foundations that don't match me, and now I can't even swatch in store anymore. Thankfully, I found the Il Maquillage Power Match Quiz. It literally found my perfect foundation shade in seconds. Plus, with Try Before You Buy, I was even sent my full-size match to try for free for 14 days. But I'm definitely keeping this. Take the quiz at ilmakiage.com slash quiz. That's I-L-M-A-K-I-A-G-E dot com slash quiz. Support for Clever comes from Master and Dynamic. We know you love great design and care about quality audio. So we know you will love Master and Dynamic's headphones and earphones. Brilliant sound and design motivates everything they do. So Master and Dynamic products are the perfect gift for the music and design obsessed alike. And after you see the craftsmanship and premium materials, we know you'll want to get a pair for yourself too. Whether you're looking for luxurious and comfortable over-ear headphones, portable and power-packed true wireless earphones, or an immersive wireless speaker, Master and Dynamic has what you need to upgrade your listening experience. Hear your favorite podcast, clever, obviously, and your favorite songs in a whole new way. Visit masterdynamic.com and use the code CLEVER for 10% off your new pair of headphones. Terms and conditions apply. That's masterdynamic.com. And the one object I always start out with is Michael Graves' Whistling Bird Tea Kettle. Because I think arguably that is the most successful architect design product in history. They've sold over $300 million worth. And I got this from Alberto Alessi himself, that $300 million worth of this tea kettle since it came out in 1985. And it has been a real mystery to many people as to why this particular object has been so successful. Why did this one hit the jackpot? Why did so many people at, at so early a time in 1985 be willing to pay $175 for a tea kettle? So over the years, I've tried to analyze it and break it apart design component by design component to figure out why this one is so successful. Hi everyone, I'm Jamie. I'm Amy and this is Clever. And today we're talking to Lisa Roberts. Lisa started out as an architect and then transitioned into product design. But she is most renowned for being a high design promoter and connoisseur. 
She began collecting design objects in the mid-80s and has amassed an enormous and amazing collection of over 400 objects, a collection she's written about in her books Antiques of the Future and Design Pop, Game Changers and Contemporary Product Design. But her collection, which she shares with the public in the form of books, private and educational viewings, is only one of the ways in which she is a steward of the arts and advocate of high design. She travels the world speaking and educating on the subject. She's a trustee and board member for many art and design institutions. And she was the subject of a TV series called My Design Life. Plus, there's a design-loving cat who's also an Instagram star in this story. So let's talk to Lisa. My name's Lisa Roberts. I live in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I've actually done many things over the course of my career, but everything has involved design in one way or another. And I think it's because I'm just passionate about design, both in the way I live and what I do and how I see the world. And why are you passionate about design? Well, I'd say that might be a little harder to figure out why one person is drawn to one thing over another. Let me start with how I grew up. I grew up in a home that was very unusual. I lived in a a fairly traditional suburban neighborhood, but my parents decided to build a home when I was 10 years old, and the architect that they selected had studied with Frank Lloyd Wright. So our house was very much in the Wright style. Mm. It looked like a contemporary ski lodge. So here we were in this suburban Philadelphia neighborhood where every house kind of looked the same, and we had this, what was an extraordinary home. Wow. But at 10 years old, I certainly did not appreciate it. (laughs) It made me different than everybody else, and I actually hated living in that house, but it penetrated my DNA. I was exposed to high design at a very young age when nobody else I knew had that kind of environment. And although I hated it as a child, it definitely informed who I became as an adult. I bet. Did your hatred for it come from it making you different than everyone else and preventing you from fitting in? Or were there some issues to living in it that informed your feelings about it? And then can you describe some of the details that have stuck with you over time? Yeah, I I would say it was really because it made me different. Mm, mm -hmm. That's painful as a kid. So painful. And it was a dramatic house. Frank Lloyd Wright had designed a synagogue outside of Philadelphia down the street from us. So it wasn't as though people had not seen something like that before, but nobody had ever seen a home like ours. You know, it was funny. I So I hated the house growing up. And as a matter of fact, when we first moved there, if I was sleeping over somebody's house and the mother would bring me home, I would always say I lived at the house next door. I never told people where I really lived until it's, you know, eventually came out. But after I graduated from high school and went on to college and went back to my 10th year high school reunion, I was pretty shy as a child. And, and partly why I wanted to fit in and not be different. And when I went back to my reunion, people came up to me and said, you know, Lisa, 
we love that house you grew up in. Are you still living there? And then somebody else would come up and say, you know, I remember coming to your house. It was the greatest house. So people remembered my house. They didn't remember me. So I, it was kind of an interesting observation that that house had such a big impression on anybody who came to see it. Today, I live in a home that's very much inspired by, you know, if Frank Lloyd Wright was alive today with the materials and technologies that we have available, I would say the home that I live in that I was involved in the design of with an architect very much has the flavor of the house I grew up in. Oh, isn't that interesting? So it really did seep into your consciousness, into your DNA, and you're able to integrate it now into your personality. It makes you different and special and you can appreciate it and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. (laughs) So I'm curious, as this young person growing up in this very dramatic house and finding your own personality and your own interests, how did your creativity and your, uh, what were your general proclivities? Like what subjects did you like to study in school or how did you like to express yourself? Well, my favorite subjects were math and art. And when I was in college, you know, deciding what to major in, and I had gone to my advisor and said I wanted to do a double major in math and art. And they said it was really too far apart. Why didn't I just major in architecture? And it actually had never even occurred to me, but that started my career path in design was majoring in architecture in in college. But long before that, if I was going to think about some inclination where I started to demonstrate some interest in design or some reflection of understanding the importance of design, when I was in junior high school or middle school, I was the the class treasurer. And one of the jobs of the treasurer was to work in the school store. So every day after school, I was manning the store and it was basically a glorified closet with a big window. So it was pretty um, institutional looking and I would be in there every day and it was pretty dull. So one day I got the inspiration that I was going to make curtains for this huge window that was in the store. So I made these, you know, pretty basic curtains. I wasn't that great of a seamstress, but I got some funky fabric and made curtains. And I started to notice more people were coming into the store. (laughs) Everybody was commenting on these curtains. And then the principal came into the store and he really liked the curtains. And he nicknamed me Curtain Roberts. (laughs) And that was my name throughout middle school. And when I graduated and I went up to get my diploma, rather than saying my name, Lisa Roberts, he said, Curtains Roberts. (laughs) (laughs) Fortunately, I lost that handle in high school. Well, I love that you were appreciated and supported for your creative input on the store because, you know, merchandising and window displays are everything when it comes to marketing. Well, in fact, I actually did notice a temporary spike in sales (laughs) when those curtains first went in. So I think somewhere that may have told me, you know, actually, there's a little power to design and people notice and maybe it can affect behavior. Wow. So let's talk about your college years when you combined math and art in the form of architecture. I'm guessing you moved from your dramatic house to University of Pennsylvania to study and I mean, a lot of people sort of 
crack wide open in their college years. And you have to go on this journey where you go from hating your house to appreciating it in the field of architecture. How did that happen for you? So actually, my uh, cracking open, I like that, that metaphor, did not happen in college. I was almost following a prescription. I had wanted to do math and art. And so I was advised to go into architecture. I did. I majored in architecture at Penn. Then I went to graduate school and got my master's. And when I got out of school, I practiced architecture for about six years until I realized I really didn't like it. And it was also at a time when we were in a recession and it was hard to get work as architects. So I started to look around for other things that I could do without having to go back to college to get another degree. What, what could I use this pretty heavy, intensive design education background with? And I met a couple of people who were in the home furnishings industry. They were doing textile design and dinnerware design, things like that. So I started to learn about those industries. And at the same time, this was in the late 70s, early 80s. And during this recession, the established architectural firms were also finding it hard to get, you know, the interesting and the substantial commissions. So they were looking for other things to design as well. And furniture and furnishings was a natural extension. So a trend began. Architects started to design things they never had before, things as basic as tea kettles and toilet brushes. Mm. So I started to come of age right at that time. I witnessed this. I was reading about Michael Graves doing tea kettles for Alessi and Philippe Stark doing lemon juicers and seeing that Karim Rashid doing trash cans. Suddenly, these high designers were designing the most basic objects. So I moved into that industry. I learned the industry from a friend who was a textile designer. And then I started going to trade shows. And I would walk trade shows like the gift show and the bed, bath and linen show and the houseware shows. And at that time, this is again in the early 80s, a, a young designer could take a portfolio with them to the trade shows, set up appointments with the design directors and get an interview right then and there. It doesn't work as easily that way today, mm. but I pounded the aisles. I had a portfolio I made up, sort of a theoretical design ideas for dishes and glasses and placemats and trash cans and all kinds of different objects. And I walked up and down the aisles. I had set up some meetings in advance and I started getting jobs as a licensed designer. And my very first job was with a company that did dinnerware, barware, and servingware. And they had never hired an outside designer before. They had always used the guy who owned the company was the exclusive designer. But they loved the idea that I actually had an architectural background. And a lot of my original designs were architecturally related. This was also during the Memphis era. Mm -hmm. You know, Memphis came mm -hmm. in in the 80s. 
And every young designer was influenced by Memphis. So I was combining some of the Memphis vocabulary with some of my architectural themes and creating designs for dishes and for for ice buckets and trays and coasters. And I got a great contract with this company and worked for them as an independent designer for about eight years. And then I found my next company, which was a greeting card company. And I designed greeting cards for several years. And then the next one was a children's t-shirt. So when you were in these industries, you don't necessarily get pegged for one specific product category. You can float around. And I had a very specific style. So people were looking at me for my particular style. And are you finding professional fulfillment in this or are you feeling like you're still on a learning curve or where is this all heading for you? So I did this for about 25 years. I worked during that time for maybe 40 to 50 manufacturers as an independent designer. I also worked for a lot of museum stores designing the products for their shops And then I had specialty commissions, like I worked for the American Institute of Architects. They had stores around the country, and I would design products for their shops. So it was, you know, an evolving career. While I was designing, I also started collecting. I am, by nature, a collector. And I've always collected since I was a kid. I think my first collection was gum wrappers because I used to make gum chains. You know, you know those how oh, you yeah. fold gum wrappers and make those chains? Yeah, yeah. So I think I had, you know, a chain that was about, you know, 25, 30 feet long. I don't know how much gum <laughs> I had to chew to get there. But that was the first thing I collected. And then the second thing I collected were charms. Like they used to have these things called surprise balls. I don't know if you know what those are, but there are these balls that were wrapped up in paper. And as you unraveled the paper, a charm would come out. Oh, Have you ever heard of those surprise balls? No, but now uh, they have blind bags. It's just like a bag and you open it and you don't know what's inside. And then it's a surprise. Uh, it's not as fun as unraveling. <laughs> oh. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> And then there'd be, you know, gum machines where you could put in a, you know, a nickel at the time and you would get a charm. So I used to collect charms and they were little miniature objects, basically. And then from charms, I think I went on to coins and stamps, which were more classic collections. And then I started collecting clocks. And I must have had maybe 50 or 60 clocks. And you can imagine at daylight saving time what it took to change all of those clocks. Like antique clocks, digital clocks, clock radios? No, all contemporary. Okay. And a lot of um, cuckoo clocks, you know, contemporary cuckoo clocks. You did not want to be around my studio when the hour changed. (laughs) 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 So after the clocks, I was now in the design industry. And, you know, I was looking at all of these great products coming into the market designed by architects. And I thought, well, I might never be able to own a building by Michael Graves, but I could certainly own his Whistling Bird Tea Kettle by Alessi. And so and that was one of the first things that I put into my collection. And over time, I, you know, while I was designing, I was also collecting. And the collection, I think today I probably have over 400, 450 objects. 
everything from a toothbrush by Philippe Stark mm. to a chair by Umberto and Fernando Campana. So a wide range of scale, wide range of materials and wide range of technologies to make these things. Do you have a place in your home where you're putting all of these objects? Is there like a room or a section that's dedicated to it? And do you have it? How do you have it displayed? I'm just curious. Is it like a museum or? It's actually a little bit of everything. So I do have a dedicated space in my home that I've set up like a museum. It's like a gallery. I call it the gallery. And I have, maybe I have 200 and, you know, 220 objects on display. I also have in the center of the gallery, I have a table, long table that goes down the center of the gallery. And I put in a rotating exhibit. So kind of like a museum. I have my own museum. (laughs) So, you know, I have my permanent collection and then the rotating exhibit. (laughs) Nice. And then I have very large Tupperware bins in my attic and I have everything carefully cataloged and categorized and labeled on the outside of the bins. And that's where I store the things that are not on display. And then I actually live with some of the objects. So they're sort of, you know, around the house in various rooms. Interesting. Do do you have a favorite object or a super rare object that you would say is like the most interesting or unique? You look tired. I take it the caffeine, toothpaste, and adrenaline face serum aren't working? Well, maybe you should ask Santa for a nectar mattress this year. And if the big guy brings you another unicorn finger puppet, don't worry, because mattresses start at just $499, and you get $399 in accessories thrown in, as well as a 365-night home trial and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com today. Support for Clever comes from Master and Dynamic. We know you love great design and care about quality audio. So we know you will love Master and Dynamic's headphones and earphones. Brilliant sound and design motivates everything they do. So Master and Dynamic products are the perfect gift for the music and design obsessed alike. And after you see the craftsmanship and premium materials, we know you'll want to get a pair for yourself too. Whether you're looking for luxurious and comfortable over-ear headphones, portable and power-packed true wireless earphones, or an immersive wireless speaker, Master and Dynamic has what you need to upgrade your listening experience. Hear your favorite podcast, clever, obviously, and your favorite songs in a whole new way. Visit masterdynamic.com and use the code CLEVER for 10% off your new pair of headphones. Terms and conditions apply. That's masterdynamic.com. I have something in every category like that. But I would say, so you could say, what's your favorite lighting design? And what is your favorite chair? And Mm -hmm. what is your favorite? So it's not necessarily favorite overall. But I would say one of the things that is my favorite, and, and in my gallery that's in my house, just to show how I share it before I answer your question of what's my favorite, I have students from the universities. There's quite a few universities in Philadelphia that have design departments. And many of the faculty bring their students and I give them a tour of the collection. And the one object 
I always start out with is Michael Graves' Whistling Bird Tea Kettle. Because I think arguably that is the most successful architect design product in history. They've sold over $300 million worth. And I got this from Alberto Alessi himself, that $300 million worth of this tea kettle since it came out in 1985. And it is been a real mystery to many people as to why this particular object has been so successful. Why did this one hit the jackpot? Why did so many people at at so early a time in 1985 be willing to pay $175 for a tea kettle? So over the years, I've tried to analyze it and break it apart, design component by design component, to figure out why this one is so successful. And I have my theories I have my, you know, I've talked to other people about why they think it is, and I think I have an understanding. But what's also really interesting is how difficult it is to replicate that. Even if you understand why something is successful, why people are drawn to it, it's very hard to repeat that success. So I think there's a lot of lessons in this particular product. And so when you say, do you have a favorite? In some regards, that's a favorite, not only because I actually use one every day, and I have used one every day for the past 30 years, one of these tea kettles, but I also think it is a timeless design that has resonated with so many people that just cannot be replicated. Then I think of things that I love is the OXO Good Grips line which I think many people have, you know, in their kitchens. And I love that product category, not just one, but just the concept behind it, because it really did change the way we think about kitchen utensils. It changed the way we think about the objects that are so functional that we never gave thought to them before. And they really have achieved what they set out to do, which was to be a part of universal design, to be something that could be used by the widest range of people, whether you had a a disability or not, whether you were left-handed or right-handed, whether you were old or young, and to be attractive enough that it didn't have a medicinal look to it, although the original agenda was that it should be for people who had a disability. Oh, interesting. I did not know that. Yeah. I have a chair that I just actually just met Giulio Capolini, the wonderful Italian manufacturer. And I have a chair that was created called the Rainbow Chair. And it is made up of these acrylic plates, these translucent colored acrylic plates. And light goes. It's one of my favorites, too. It's so it's I can look at it forever. It's an absolutely exquisite chair. It's not really functional because you wouldn't want to sit in something that costs that much money for fear of scratching it. But I did learn, as it is part of my collection, and my collection is called Antiques of the Future because my belief is that once these objects are no longer in production, they will go up in value because they represent the best of design in their time. And this chair is an example of that. I think I originally purchased it for $5,000. And when I met Mr. Capolini, 
he informed me that today those chairs are very, very hard to make and they can't find enough craftspeople to make the chairs. So they're in very, very limited production and the cost is $17,000. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was pretty shocked by that. <laughs> That was the most expensive thing I'd ever bought. And now it's proven that in, in just a few years, it's really gone up in value. It's gone up in value, but I think it's also because we're phasing out handwork and craft as a valuable part of society. And we've, for the last couple of generations, we've focused on thought work as being more valuable and we're losing some craftspeople and our design is suffering, don't you think? Well, you know, that's an interesting point that you make, because I would say the answer is yes, but the answer is also no. So, for example, there is a wonderful Dutch designer, young designer named Joris Larman. And one of the things that he specializes in is this juxtaposition of using advanced technologies like 3D printing and CNC milling and combining it with hand assembly. So he did a series of chairs called the Maker Chair. It's 10 different chairs. They're made up of pieces, and the pieces are all made by CNC milling or by 3D printing. So using the most advanced technologies for making the pieces, and then the pieces are connected by hand to create the chair. By a skilled and or unskilled craftsperson? So he has his own, he trains his own craftspeople. Okay. So there is a, there's a technique in, in how to assemble these chairs. They're not just thrown together. Obviously, they're very carefully assembled. It's not like ready these, to assemble is what you're saying. Well, actually, he does have one that you can go online and it's open sourced. And one of the chairs, you can actually have a 3D printer, print up the pieces, and then you can make it at home. So he gives you instructions on how to do that. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it, it's, it looks like puzzle pieces. Yeah, I think there are quite a few designers who are trying to take, you know, where we're heading in the future and combine it with, you know, craft or techniques that are old or ancient or passed down. And I think we're going to see a little bit more of that. Yeah, I think even modern craft. I just think that mm -hmm. there's a return for this understanding of how materials get manipulated by somebody who's really a master of how to manipulate them by hand. And there's a, a hunger for it. And there's also, this is a great example you've just given us of somebody who's combining digital techniques with excellent craftsmanship. Excellent craftsmanship will always be a very valuable component to design. When you remove the craftsmanship entirely, we have something that's stamped out by a machine. And there's interesting stuff going on there, too. But I think what's really fascinating is this combination of modern techniques that don't discourage craftsmanship. Yeah. You know, also, there's this major rise in the makers community. Oh, absolutely. That's so, what I'm talking about. Yeah. So I think this is, you know, a reaction in some respects to being enamored with, you know, technology. But I think it's it's there's this integration between the two. Speaking of that integration, you've written a, a book called Design Pop, which is a book about contemporary design game changers. 
Well, I've actually, I've written two books just to kind of back up a little bit. After I practiced as a designer for 25 years and I had this collection that I called Antiques of the Future, I found that people were really interested in this collection. And in order to make it more accessible to a broader audience, I wrote my first book. And I'm not really a writer, but I found a way that I love to communicate with people about design by breaking it down into its more simple form and making it digestible to a broad audience. So I did that with my first book, Antiques of the Future, which was really kind of an overview of highlights from my collection. And the second book was a little bit more targeted, Design Pop, where I looked for objects that change the way we think about the things we use every day. And sometimes that could be innovating a new material or using an existing material in a, an entirely new way. Or it could be a new technology or an age-old technology where we've transformed that technology and adapted it with today's understanding of how things work. So for example, a designer who had adapted a robotic arm and made it into a 3D printer through an extrusion method, you know, the way you sort of push out toothpaste, he pushed out plastic material to create a 3D printer. So the second book, the objective was to really show where innovation is occurring in, in different areas. And I looked at what was really happening since the year 2000, because there has been so much innovation. What was the driving force behind this book? I mean, obviously, the subject matter is fascinating, but I'm interested in why you felt personally compelled to put this out in the world. And did you have to, you said you're not really a writer. Did you have to, I don't know, overcome some fear to do it? Or was it a passion project? Although I'm not a writer, I really view myself as an interpreter. Ah, I can yeah. get that. And so I felt that I could take something that was very technical and usually presented in jargon of the industry and interpret it so that it could be understood by people who were not designers. And that's what I really felt my mission was, was to take these things that were being created that had, you know, describe what is 3D printing to somebody who's never heard of it before. Describe CNC, milling, and how do you make that understandable without turning off your reader? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My books really have a tremendous amount of photography, and photography was a very critical part because the photograph had to be more than a glamour shot. It really was to give information about the object you were looking at. So I also felt that one of the ways to bring design to people who are not designers, how to connect to them is through humor. So there's always something kind of a little irreverent or poking fun at without being disrespectful in in my books. And it was a completely different way of, of, of doing a design book. You know, when I first started putting these books together, I said, OK, I'm not a writer. 
So what can I contribute to that industry? You know, I have a huge bookshelf of design books and most of them are academic and pretty much for people in the industry mm-hmm. or, or they're a hundred percent photographs with very little text. So I thought, well, how about make a book that is a good part of it is photography, but make the text really easy to understand. Don't dumb it down, mm-hmm. but simplify it. When I got response from my first book, people were saying, you know, I've understood this for the first time. Or, I, you know, I never would have noticed it if you hadn't, you know, shown it in your book. The way you describe it opens up my eyes. That's wonderful feedback because that means, hey, <laughs> I accomplished my goal. Yes. Doing what I set out to do. Yeah. So after I wrote my first book, I traveled around the United States and I did a lot of lecturing at museums and universities. And I was approached by a TV production company that really liked how I was making design understandable and digestible to a broad audience and asked if they could create a TV series around me. Was that Nancy Glass Productions? It was. Yeah, I I remember when that was happening. I worked also worked with Nancy Glass Productions. So a lot of the same people on the crew, I'm sure. Oh, wow. So, um, you know, I said to Nancy, I said, well, you know, you do reality TV and a lot of it is, you know, fake. And I just can't do something that I'm not genuine as to who I really am. So she structured a show. She said, let's do this. Let's follow you for a year. Let's see what you do in your life. You know, what trade shows do you go to? What, where do you speak? What exhibitions are you visiting? What designers do you know? Let's just trail you. And at the time, I was starting to think about doing a second book because my first book was so popular. People asked you, okay, so what's next? So that was part of the compelling reason as to why I decided to do a second book. And the TV series followed me and my team for a year as I did the research collecting the different objects that I was going to put in the second book, finding the game changers. And that's what we did. We did this for a year. I don't think I ever want to do another TV series. It's, uh, it really takes a whole lot out of your life. And we came out with the series. And shortly after the series aired, the book came out. And did you acquire all of the game changers in Design Pop? Are they part I of your- did not. Okay. So I did not. That leads to my my next question though is for this collection which I'm sure is a living organism that you keep adding to and it keeps growing and evolving. Do you have a set of criteria for acquiring a piece or or a few questions you ask yourself or yeah, how do you make a selection? And if your belief is that this collection will be the antiques of the future, they will represent the best that design has to offer. I'm assuming that you have criteria for deciding what you think is the best. Yeah, I absolutely do have criteria. (laughs) So I've always defined antiques of the future as highly designed contemporary products that I believe will rise in value once they're no longer in production because they represent the best of design in their time. 
And the way I define best of design is I said, I'm not going to be the arbiter of deciding that question. So I would talk to museum curators. I would go to design exhibitions. I would see what the press was writing. I would talk to other designers and I would get multiple opinions as to what people thought were the important designs of this era. So I would first gravitate to something, you know, you start with what you like, Mm -hmm. but then I would do my due diligence, you know, has this won design awards, has this been displayed in museums? Who's the designer? What is their background? Has the press acknowledged that this is important in the industry? So I would collect all of that data and then I would make a decision as to whether I would bring it into my collection. And I would say, you know, I've had the collection now for 25 some years and as proven by the rainbow chair, the things that are not in production any longer, some of them have really gone up in value. Most of them are still in production. So determining when something becomes an antique may be a few years down the line. Do you have a a goal for this? Do you feel like one day there will be a Lisa Roberts design museum that's open to the public? Uh, No, no, that's definitely not a goal. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a goal Um, for the collection and, and what will happen to it? So I am involved with two different museums. I'm on the board of the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and I'm on the board of the Cooper Hewitt Museum in New York. And they have both expressed interest in various parts of my collection. So I think I probably will divide it up between them. I think also my children, who are starting to really express interest in design themselves and have lived with some of these things for many years, will want to have a say in it as well. Mm -hmm. So I think it probably will be divided up. I want to know, because we are in an interesting design uh I guess period of time where we have a lot of traditional craft and we have all of this futuristic technology, 3D printing, etc. What are you interested in these days? What where is your research taking you and what things are you really curious about learning about? Well I think I am really intrigued by this idea of how to combine technology with the handmade. I like the idea of the humanizing aspect of handmade and not losing that tradition, but evolving that tradition in the light of technologies. I think technology should be subservient. It is a tool. It is not the end product. And I'd like to see how that tool is harnessed and combined with the hand. So that intrigues me. I'm intrigued just thinking about it by digital printing. I love clothes that have, you know, digital designs on them. And I, I have several pieces, you know, what you can do with digital printing and the freedom that designers have with that is something that really appeals to me. And I'd like to see how that evolves. Also, I think with jewelry, it also is very interesting to see how things that were at first 3D printed are now being combined with hand assembly as well. And I'd like to see that evolution. Yeah, I'm fascinated by that, too. I have kind of a personal question for you because I'm also a maker and 
one of the reasons that drives me to make, I usually make one of a kind things. I fantasize about this sort of extension, this connection between me and the end user that exists and evolves over time through the work, through the piece. And so I'm wondering how you feel about that. Like, do you feel like you have a connection with the individual designer of a piece in your collection? And if so, does that connection deepen or dissipate over time and use? Like with the Michael Graves Whistling Bird tea kettle, do you feel any connection to Michael Graves through that object? I'm not sure I feel a connection to Michael Graves, although I I know him or I knew him and I knew his architecture before I knew his product and I loved his architecture. I think I had stayed at one of the hotels he had designed in Disney long before he became a product designer. So I feel like I've I've experienced the different phases of his career and became you know, a fan of his throughout those changes. I did have an opportunity to meet a designer named Patrick Jouin from France. He had designed something that I own called the One-Shot Stool. And the One-Shot Stool at the time it was created was the largest 3D printed object that had movable parts. It's a, a little stool that has a center handle that when you pull it up in the center, it collapses like an umbrella. And when I was meeting him, he was talking a little bit about his design philosophy, that he designs the gesture. He does not design the object. So in designing the gesture, he's designing the interaction between the object and the person. And after he told me about his philosophy, I felt like now I see his work through that lens in a way that I never would have before if I hadn't heard from him directly. So my connection to designers, and I know quite a few of them now, a lot of them I actually interviewed for my TV show or I've interviewed for my books. I love to get their backstories or some anecdote about how they created something or some of the failures that they encountered along the way to the final thing that became a success. And I think when I get that kind of information, I feel that much closer to the work that they've created and I appreciate it so much more. So yes, I do get closer to the designers in that, in that capacity. That's exactly what I think Amy and I are trying to accomplish with this podcast is to tell these stories of the people who are making or designing the objects, how they became designers, but also their creative process and their challenges and their successes. And I think once you hear it from a a human being in your ears, there's just something that brings you closer to the products that they make. Absolutely. And I've listened to your podcast and you have succeeded in doing that. Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Glad to hear that. I want to know about you, Lisa Roberts. You're clearly a woman on a mission. Where does your most profound sense of fulfillment come from? So I would say I 
haven't been designing recently because I've been writing books and doing other things. But one of the people I used to design for, actually a museum store, had contacted me and asked me if I would do some new work for them. So I've started designing again and realized how much I've missed it. And so I would say my serene moment is when I'm sitting in my studio and my medium in designing has always been cut paper, cutting out paper. And I have a huge filing cabinet of hundreds of pieces of Pantone paper that I collected as much Pantone paper before they stopped manufacturing it. So I have files and I and every drawer has a different color. So I have hundreds of colors of each color of Pantone paper. And when I create my work, the very first thing I do is select the colors. And I'm very much a color person. I live with color. I love color. Color permeates my books, permeates my wardrobe, permeates every aspect of my life. And so sitting there in my studio with absolutely nobody to bother me with these drawers of colors and the first step is to select the colors for the design is one of my absolutely most cherished moments. I'm imagining it. I love that. (laughs) I know. I'm just thinking in my brain like, oh, hundreds of drawers of paper in different colors. That sounds like a dream. (laughs) And also the nobody to bother you part. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Except the cat. (laughs) Ah, the cat. Ah, yes, the cat. So let's get to the cat who is named Mr. Waffles. And Mr. Waffles has his own Instagram account, Mr. Waffles Loves Design. I would just love to know how Mr. Waffles fits into all of this. And does he have a design object preference? Is there a certain object he loves more than any other one? Well, so the history of Mr. Waffles is he was my son's cat. My son got a little kitten. My son's 26 years old and he doesn't live with us. He decided to get a cat and don't know why we didn't have cats growing up. We didn't actually have any pets growing up. And he got this cat and his job started requiring him to do a lot of travel. So he asked us if we would cat sit. And I'd never even touched a cat before Mr. Waffles came into our life. So suddenly this kitten's coming over and staying with us. And the very first thing Mr. Waffles did, we kept him in my son's bedroom. And my son has in his bedroom a chair called the Up Five Chair by Gaetano Pesci. It is a huge chair, a foam chair in the shape of a woman's body. It's my favorite chair of all time. Yeah, so <laughs> it's, it's like a my very dream chair. Classic chair. So my son has this, you know, it's it's got the big boobs and the, and mm-hmm. the lap, basically. There's no head or anything. And as soon as Mr. Waffles came to our house, the very first place he went was in the lap of the chair where he's kind of, you know, surrounded by the foam of the chair. So I, I snap a picture, right? Pull out my iPhone, get him on camera. And then the next thing Mr. Waffles did when he got a little bigger, because he started staying at our house a little bit more frequently on those long weekends. 
The second place Mr. Waffles went is that I have a chair in my dining room by Umberto and Fernando Campana. It's called the Corolla chair, and it looks like orange-coated wire, all twisty and turny in the shape of a chair. And Mr. Waffles started climbing on that like it was a jungle gym. You know, he was all over that chair. So I pull out my phone and I snap his picture. And I realize Mr. Waffles is going to all of these different things in our house, the design objects. I have... um, I have something in my office, in my home office, called Alg or Alge by the Borlick brothers. It's manufactured by Vitra, and it's this kind of wall piece made out of these little green plastic elements that look like algae, and they're all sort of assembled together, and it, we have, I have it on a wall in my office, and Mr. Waffle started to climb on it. So this cat was pretty drawn to design at an early age. So as Mr. Waffles started staying with us, not just on the weekends, but then during the week, eventually Mr. Waffles became our cat. And I was starting to take so many pictures of him interacting with design that I created an Instagram account, Mr. Waffles Loves Design. And I'm thinking about how to use this. And at the same time, I've been thinking about my next project. And I've written two books for adults for design. And I thought, you know, I started to look at the market. Are there any children's books on design? And there really are very, very few. There's a lot of art books for children, but only a couple about design. So I thought, well, maybe I could turn Mr. Waffles Loves Design into a children's book and have Mr. Waffles be the guide or the vehicle through which to teach kids about design. I am down with this idea. I think (laughs) Jamie and I talked to so many designers who just didn't know that design was even a profession growing up. And so one of the things that we're really passionate about is just expanding the pipeline by getting kids to know that that's like a really important thing for the world and you can grow up and be a designer. And so children's books are a great way to do that. And cats are the stars of the internet. So I think you're onto something Mm -hmm. here. Well, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was going to ask you about a new project that you have, but that sounds like it. That's an amazing project as the mother of a six-year-old girl. I really need that book. (laughs) I'm not sure you'll have it in time, but on the Instagram, you can see how wide ranging it is because we want to show Mr. Waffles in lots of different design contexts. But I think it's starting to inform itself as to how he can tell this story, how we can use him. Mm -hmm. So so stay tuned. Okay, so we will stay tuned to Mr. Waffles Loves Design. Are there any other websites or social media addresses that our listeners should plug into to keep tabs on you? So I do have my website, my general website, which is mydesignlife.com. And on that site, I have a basically a virtual museum of my entire collection. So you can see every object that's in my Antiques of the Future collection. In addition, I have the the TV series. You can watch the episodes. And then I have information about my books. So it's pretty comprehensive. 
Fantastic. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Well, thank you, Jamie and Amy. This was fun. Bye. <laughs> you have nothing to say. Are you speechless? I'm still thinking about Mr. Waffles Loves Design. I'm actually really excited about that idea. As much as I'm not really a cat person, <laughs> I do love that she's found an organic way to channel her passion about design into something that could translate or interpret this passion to children. I'm excited. I think that's great. I love the idea of Mr. Waffles. <laughs> But she, I mean, she's on to something, though. There really aren't a lot of design books or stories or anything for kids about design. And so I think it's necessary, you know, whether it ends up being a book or just something on the Internet, videos, photos, anything. And I think there's this this pothole that design books for children could fall into, which is like the pretentious hipster parent pothole. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the introduction of a cat helps it veer around that pothole, if you know what I'm saying. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So I'm all for Mr. Waffles now. The one one cat I'm not allergic to. (laughs) (laughs) So another thing she said that I really appreciated is that she defines herself as an interpreter and that she felt her role was to simplify but not to dumb down. Because there's a real delicate balance there. I think when you can distill the information out so that it's entertaining and digestible, but doesn't remove any of the intellect, you've really accomplished something. And I think that's an important mission of all entertainment properties that are meant for consumption. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of pressure from people to dumb things down. By people, I mean, I don't know, publishers, distributors, media outlets, And they somehow think that dumbing it down makes it less challenging for the viewer slash reader, but it also makes it less interesting. Mm. And that's a problem. Mm -hmm. So simplifying without dumbing it down is the way to go. I mean, that's how you keep the fascination alive, but also make it fun. And accessible to anybody. Fun and accessible. Yeah. Yeah. I loved hearing about all of her collections from when she was a kid. Yes, at some point, we have to get inside the mind of a collector because I don't understand. Oh. <laughs> yeah. You know, the people. there are people who are compelled to collect and they're not hoarders. It's a very different thing. No, there's criteria and, and she talked about that. So I, I think that translates to anybody who collects things. They, they must have goals, right? Or criteria for the things that they collect, but also a goal for the collection, whether it's to complete a series of something or whether it's to create a specific installation, whatever it is. Yeah, I think those goals, too, make it like it's a constant mission, right? It's a constant search. It's a constant detective kind of mission when you're a collector. It's not just about not getting rid of things. It's about seeking and finding and being excited about the next thing that you can add to your collection. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting about adult collectors... (laughs) not kids Uh is that it's not about like getting all the garbage pail kids like all of the cards and having all of them right it's about having a collection that's personal to you but that's meaningful and the items are more hand selected for specific reasons rather than just trying to get everything that was ever made right (laughs) right or to fill out some brand's mission for you to buy all their stuff (laughs) right (laughs) 
I thought it was so interesting that she grew up in a Lloyd Wright-inspired house that she hated because it made her different. And then she studied architecture. She didn't sound super passionate about the study of architecture, but eventually she came back around to appreciating that house, I think because it seeped in. I mean, maybe it was through osmosis more than anything, but I also found it really interesting that she hated being different, but it turns out that people were noticing the house, not her. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it's like to grow up being in the shadow of a structure that you live in. You know, as someone who wanted to fit in when I was younger, I also wanted to stand out, Mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. Absolutely. You want to be different from other people, but you also want to be accepted. And so I think because it was a structure and not something she could alter about herself, that it was really frustrating. Yeah, it wasn't a personal choice. Right. She had no control over it. It wasn't like she could change her clothes into something else or buy the latest sneakers or whatever it was. It was this thing that she lived in. And I I thought it was funny that she would tell people that she lived next door. (laughs) But I do think that like people do remember those differences rather than like if you were like everybody else, they don't remember you, right? Right. It's hard though to like get kids that age to really appreciate or understand those kinds of things because it's such a trying time especially when you're like Mm -hmm. a you know a tween or teenager and you just kind of want to fit in and be like everybody else it's it's difficult to get a kid like that to step back and appreciate their individuality yeah I mean I think they have to grow into it I don't think they can really step back and appreciate it until until they can really own it So then that kind of means that the adults, the parents, have like a responsibility, I guess, to expose their kids to all kinds of different things and kind of push them outside their boundaries, even if they're uncomfortable with it or if they're like, mom, it's so (laughs) embarrassing. (laughs) Like (laughs) Maybe later on it will make for, you know, a wonderful anecdote or a connection to people from the past. Absolutely, Good old Curtin's Roberts. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Curtin's. That's Curtin's for Curtin's. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I can't help it. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you'd like to help support Clever, there are a number of things you can do. Advertise with us. We're always happy to partner with amazing sponsors to make truly custom content. Write a review. A review in iTunes helps potential listeners find us. Talk about us on social media and IRL. Let your friends, neighbors, colleagues, frenemies, chef. (laughs) (laughs) Your cobbler. (laughs) Yes, and and your cobbler. (laughs) Know about us and the rich world of podcasts. You can also donate. We have a button on our website if you're feeling generous. You know, podcasts are free to listen to, but they cost money to make. And, of course, you can always subscribe to Clever. We love that. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And you can go to cleverpodcast.com to sign up for our newsletter, read the show notes, and see images of Lisa's collection. Also, connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Clever Podcast. We really love hearing from you guys, so thanks so much for the support. This episode of Clever was edited by Ty Navaris with music by L1011. Hello there. This message is coming to you from the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, a collection of fascinating conversations with leading historians, giving you the lowdown on history's biggest characters. 
hidden stories, and greatest adventures. Speaking of great adventures, this week the History Extra podcast is brought to you by Booking.com. Whether you're looking for a culture-filled city break, a local getaway, or a far-flung adventure, you can save at least 30% with Booking.com's Black Friday deals. These deals are for a limited time only, so you'll need to book before 1st of December to make the most of them. But the good news is that you'll have the flexibility to travel any time in 2021. Head to Booking.com forward slash Black Friday to book your next big adventure. (music) 